0: From ancient times, the Liturgy of the Hours has served as the public and communal prayer of God's people. It has been called the Vox Sponse, the voice of a bride addressed to her bridegroom. It is the very prayer which Christ Himself, together with His Church, offers to the Father for the glory of God and the salvation of the world. Hey everyone, you are listening to Vogue Sponse, a podcast on the Liturgy of the Hours. This is Episode 3, and my name is Nathan Wigfield. I serve as the Director of the St. Thomas More House of Prayer in Cranberry, Pennsylvania, and in just a moment I will be joined by my good friend Gabriel Crawford from Seattle, Washington. But before that, I want to encourage you to visit the website of the St. Thomas More House of Prayer at liturgyofthehours.org. There you can find all kinds of resources on the Liturgy of the Hours, including a free PDF guide to help get you started, page numbers for praying with the church each day of the year, a blog, online store, and more. When you visit our website, you can also sign up for our monthly online newsletter and receive a free copy of our night prayer book. Lastly, be sure to look us up on Facebook and Instagram, which we update regularly with inspiring quotes, sacred art, and information on events that we host at our retreat center. All right. Well, here we are. Gabriel, how are you doing? I'm doing real well. Awesome. Well, last last week we had a great conversation. We discussed uh, the first paragraph of uh, really the first sentence of the first paragraph of the general instructions on the liturgy of the hours and uh, really discussed the public and communal nature of the liturgy of the hours. We talked about how the church's desire is for this prayer to be prayed in community and thereby Uh, manifesting the church's praise more clearly. And today we're going to continue to fill out what this means, uh, but we're going to do it with special attention given to the early Christian witness uh, to communal prayer. I want to read for us the end of the first paragraph of the General Instructions and going on into the next paragraph. It says this, that from the very beginning, those who were baptized devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the community, to the breaking of the bread and to prayer. That's a quote directly from Acts 2:42. It continues, "The acts of the apostles give frequent testimony to the fact that the Christian community prayed with one accord. The witness of the early church teaches us that individual Christians devoted themselves to prayer at fixed times. Then in different places, it soon became the established practice to assign special times for common prayer. For example, the last hour of the day when evening draws on and the lamp is lighted, or the first hour" when night draws to a close with the rising of the sun. And so we're going to dive a little bit into that uh, today, but we're actually going to begin even with the backdrop of this, which is really second temple Judaism. And to help us see this more clearly, uh, what's the con- that is the context of second temple Judaism and how that sheds light on the early Christian witness. I'm going to turn it over to you, Gabriel to uh, share a little bit about what you have found in your study.
1: Hey, um, So the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Jews walk into the bar.
0: What happens? (laughs) Go for it.
1: Second Temple Judaism. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So the Babylonians take the Jews into uh, exile. So they send them into the diaspora. You know, um, if you remember the, even backing up a little bit, under uh David and Solomon, the temple is built you know sometime around the tenth century b c uh you know so that would be like nine somewhere around like nine fifty uh b c
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um you know and i'm trying to say this like I remember it super well. I'm not an expert on this. <laughs> but, you know. and so around that you know around there, first temple's built, and then not too long after the uh Babylonian empire kind of comes in, and um, the temple gets destroyed, the Jews get sent into exile, and then not long after, the um, Persians, uh, actually, a good 400 years or so, right? Right, I
0: I was going to say, I think it's around 6th century uh, BC.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. so that's a long time. (laughs) So I redact my previous statement, and so Around 6th century BC, the Persians come in and they defeat the Babylonians and the Jews are able to come back to Jerusalem and they're able to rebuild the temple. This is kind of, the second temple gets built in right around 530 or so BC. So we're talking a good like 300, 400 years that the Jewish temple had been destroyed. They're sent. All over the world, and then they have to figure out how do they live in relationship to the Lord without the sacrifices at the temple, which was really the heart of their worship. Mm-hmm. And so, the temple is now rebuilt. Second Temple Judaism is this period of time in which Jewish customs and culture begins to flourish between that temple being rebuilt and its destruction in 70 A.D. by the Roman Empire. So that, that period of time is Second Temple Judaism. Um, and this is where fixed hour prayer for Judaism really begins to happen. And that's that's what we're going to explore, is if, Nate, you had read that the early Christians are beginning to pray at set hours of the time, which we know has become the tradition of Christianity over the centuries. The question at hand is, well, why were they uh, doing so? Mm -hmm. You know, why were they praying at such hours? And that is something that began to happen within this time period. And And so really the question that we'll ask is, well, why did fixed hour prayer, how did fixed hour prayer develop during this time period?
0: Yeah, I think what we're trying to establish is that there actually is precedent for fixed hour prayer to emerge among the Christians. That there certainly is the witness of, you know, Christ who calls to prayer and you know obviously preceding Christ, uh Jewish Christians going all the way back to the Shema, you know, the practice of daily reciting the Shema um at you know different times throughout the day and then of course combining that with uh with the offering of sacrifice, etc. that you have this regular practice of of prayer and sacrifice in the life of the Jewish faithful. Uh, But nonetheless, there is this development that happens uh, within early Christian practice where this over the course of hundreds of years becomes codified into a set rhythm of prayer that begins uh, with vigils uh, during the night, you know, morning prayer and continues on through the day. Um, So I think again, we're establishing the fact that there is precedent for this in the context from which uh, early Christianity arises.
1: Yeah, and uh, I want to present, you know, there's this guy, you've probably heard of him, uh, Dr. Dr. Jeremy Penner. Have you ever heard of him?
0: Only because you sent me his dissertation.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? I found him on this thing called Google. and uh okay so this random dude basically who uh apparently is smart sorry jeremy (laughs) (laughs) you know if you're listening yeah 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 okay anyway so you know i was asking this question what did the pattern of prayer look like during this time period for the jews which is the backdrop? For the Christians, and he wrote this excellent dissertation uh, for his doctorate in philosophy. And so, I spent the past week uh, reading that. And basically, he has like three theses as to why it developed. And is and here's his first critique. And th- you know, and this is common. His first critique is like, well, more recently, scholars have begin have begun to engage this question of. How did fixed pattern prayer develop for the Jews? And they have different theories on it. So here's, here's his first thesis. He, he says that daily cultic services of the Jerusalem temple provided a pattern uh, to which daily prayer could be anchored. And so basically what he's saying mm. is like pious Jews began to associate and perform spontaneous prayers at the times of the day prescribed for the daily cultic services. So let's let's put that into kind of layman terms, right? Um, in the Jewish form of worship, there's multiple different kinds of sacrifices being offered. Um,
0: at, the, at the temple.
1: At the temple, yes. But here's the thing. You had one of the kinds of sacrifices, do you remember uh, the grain offering? Faintly. Like faintly? Yeah. So um, I only remember because I looked it up. Um, So the grain offering was a specific offering that would be performed by the priest. And basically he would mix uh, grain with like oil and incense.
2: Hmm.
1: When... When we're reading through the Old Testament and we come across a grain offering offered by a priest, it happens in the evening most often. It the Hebrew word behind it, and forgive me on my Hebrew pronunciation, but the Mincha, that's my, you like how I really that guttural H there? It's good. It's good. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's probably the only time that'll happen. Um so the mincha sacrifice happens in the evening, but when it's offered by the priest. In the English, we we'll often see it translated as as grain offering, but any person, any lay person, can offer this mincha sacrifice. But they wouldn't mix it with incense and oil. Hmm. Um, it would it would be like the same the mincha sacrifice, just not offered by a priest, nor mixed with oil and incense. Um, Okay, so that kind of sacrifice would happen at times throughout the day. And his thesis is that pious Jews would, you know, like, they want to offer up spontaneous prayers, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a common common, uh, human experience. Like, there's some sort of circumstance happening in my life, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray to God about it. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I believe in lots of gods, and I'm having this, whatever kind of circumstance, I'm going to pray to one of those gods. Well, for the pious Jew, it would be that spontaneous prayer often happening at the time that this sacrifice, the mincha sacrifice was happening. So over time, there there seems to be this this kind of pious desire to link the sacrifices happening in the temple or the sacrifices of the Jewish worship kind of cultic system, they, they would be uniting their prayers at the same time.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the connection that I'm making is is that that patterns of prayer that developed even for individual Jews and for families, let's say patterns of personal prayer that there was a desire to unite those prayers or to associate those prayers with what was going on in the temple, because the temple was the locus of God's presence. And it was the place where true worship was offered, where sacrifice was being Mm -hmm. offered. And so there was an identification with the temple that this is where this is where the sacrifices are completed. This is where the sacrifice is offered. This is where true worship is given. And therefore, as a, as a Jew praying in the confines of my own home, let's say, my desire is to, to do what I can, even though I cannot be present there in the temple, let's say, that I cannot be uh, physically present there in the temple. I want to do what I can to unite my prayers and my sacrifices to that which is being offered in the temple. I mean, this automatically kind of draws, draws out for me uh, the sacrifice of the Mass. You know, what we're seeking to do when we come to the Mass is we're seeking to bring our own offerings to unite our prayers, to unite our, our lives, our very, our very lives, to offer them on the altar where the true sacrifice is being effected. Um, and that by extension, that in the Liturgy of the Hours, in the public and communal prayer of the church, I might be going here too quickly, but I just want to say that there's, there's this recognition that when we come together to offer the prayers and the praises of God's people in the Liturgy of the Hours, that we're doing this with our attention focused on not the temple in Jerusalem, but the heavenly temple and the worship that is, is going on there through Christ with all of his angels and saints. And so there's this identification between our, our prayers that we're offering here and that which is being done in heaven. And our desire and the church's desire is to unite what we do with, uh, with what is going on in the heavenly Jerusalem.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something deeply ingrained within our religious experience but let me uh here's an example of what i was saying it's from uh 1st kings 18 and so 1st kings 18 it's this uh encounter between elijah and the fifth the uh, 450 prophets of baal
2: mm-hmm. and
1: the 400 prophets of asherah so it's kind of this epic encounter and um let me read an example from this basically uh elijah says to them I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. And he says, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is the God. And I just want to read this because this is just awesome. It's powerful. Then then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. (laughs) But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, <laughs> or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the, new, until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. And then, uh, then it says, at the time of the sacrifice, at the time of the Mincha sacrifice in Hebrew, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. <laughs> And then he says, seize the prophets of Baal and kill them. So, (laughs) you know, the writer of Kings sums up the story well. But the point here (laughs) is that this spontaneous prayer, right? Hmm. Um, Elijah is not at the temple. He's on Mount Carmel. Right. And he's having this epic battle and he... This spontaneous prayer happens at the time of the evening sacrifice, and that and that's Penner's point that he uses another example from um, psalm one forty one that says, "Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the mm-hmm. lifting up my hands as 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 an evening sacrifice so it's an, an evening minha sacrifice. Um, so this connection between incense and spontaneous prayer, like with Elijah happening at the time of the sacrifice and that's that's his first point Hmm. so backing up during the second temple period that fixed hour prayer is happening during certain times of the day is is kind of a new development
2: Hmm.
1: and there needs to be justification for it so in the writings of like the Torah um, or Job, 1st, 2nd Samuel, the, the writings of the Old Testament that are before the rebuilding of this, the second temple, there's no like explicit command that um, Jews should be praying at these points in time or
2: they're
1: supposed to command that they should unite their prayers at the time of the sacrifice. And um, so in first Chronicles uh, now first Chronicles is written in the sometime around the, the five hundreds, you know, probably between like seventh century BC up until like a early date would say like Hmm. the third century BC. So it's written during the second temple period. And, First Chronicles sixteen describes uh, David coming into Jerusalem, and he's dancing like David does.
2: Yeah, right. Um,
1: and somebody, I think his wife, or I think it says Solomon's daughter, um, looks at him with jealousy and anger. And this is when David institutes psalmody in the Jerusalem Temple. While okay, and here's the point. So during this story. Um, David assigns, like, people to sing psalms in the temple. Mm. Mm. Um, The temple's, like, being constructed, so it hasn't been built yet. Uh, So the daily sacrifices are continuing separately in Gibeon until the construction was completed by Solomon. But David, prior to the temple being fully built, where sacrifices would uh, happen, they start singing psalms in the temple. And so, it's you know, and the point that Penner kind of makes and observes is how the um, the, the the chronicler, the one who writes this, he's kind of making this effort to to emphasize how psalmody happening in the temple, this kind of the singing of the psalms at certain times, is happening, um, and it's separate from daily sacrifices, which suggests that during this post-exilic period, it was gaining acceptance as a separate institution of worship. So the singing of Psalms becomes a form of worship for the the Hebrew Jewish people um, to communicate with, with the Lord, which would be distinct and separate from the, um, the sacrificial system.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I think this this might be a, a little bit of a jump, but uh, to one of the things that you and I had just kind of started to touch touch on in our phone conversation the other day is if this develops and this becomes fixed in terms of the daily prayers uh, happening within the temple along with the sacrifices, uh, that when it comes to 70 AD and the destruction of that temple um and also another dispersion of the Jews under the persecution of the of, of Rome, um that this then raises the question without temple sacrifice and even without temple prayer happening, how do we then how do we then worship? How do we then how do we then pray? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm
1: and, you know, and that's kind of, that's a, a big point that Penner uh, makes. And here I quote, he says, It is my view that only after the temple had been destroyed and a replacement for sacrifice was needed was daily prayer made fu- fully and formally analogous to the system of daily temple sacrifice. So mm. basically it's like, especially after 70 A.D., I mean, so f- today, like a, a pious Jew is going to be saying certain prayers at certain times of the day. But like the prayer most especially happens in the synagogue
2: mm.
1: as the house of prayer. But like go jumping back to after the temple, second temple is destroyed by the Romans, that's when it like really needs to become again that fixed out like these prayers, um, happening, especially when sacrifices would have been made, um, are effective like that, that God hears them. So that's, that's his first point, right? That's his mm-hmm. first thesis. Um, do you want to move on to, to his second? Um,
0: yeah, yeah, that'd be great.
1: Yeah. Okay. Let's skip his second. And let's talk about the third. Cause I think the third's cooler um so the uh what do you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls
0: a little bit just from you know studying seminary uh the Qumran community I know that you know they have become important texts for understanding the backdrop of first century Judaism
1: yeah 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 I you know I'm just like this past week kind of Entering into it and reminding myself of it, um, but really in the in the '60s, the these caves in Qumran area um, were ex were excavated, and all kinds of stuff was excavated. and And basically, they found um, it was kind of like there, there's different theories on who it was that lived in Qumran, but probably one of the most widely accepted theories is that one of the Jewish sects known as the Essenes were the community that stayed in um at Qumran. Mm-hmm. And so you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and whomever else. But those are like the the big three, mm-hmm. right? Like and so like the 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 Steelers, the Patriots and the Steelers. Um, <laughs> and so uh the Essenes and they had at this point in time now when are we talking we're talking kind of between 200 BC and 70 AD um that this community is gathering together at this site and you and you can go online and you can like find all kinds of really cool pictures of the what's left of this kind of historical site mm. and so there's evidence of like this giant earthquake that happened, probably like after 50 A.D. or so. That kind of led led to the whole area being dispersed. But they found like all kinds of ancient writings. Um, they basically their worship was not connected with the sacrifice in the temple, but they were trying to connect their worship. Um, and what was their worship. So some of the texts that were found described that they would be praying, and this is what Penner says uh, as he analyzes one of the the calendars, that they'd pray at morning, midday, evening, uh, night, and then midnight.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And they were connecting their prayers to the the changes of the moon and the stars and the sun. So Mm -hmm. like the sun comes up and it's time to pray. And then the sun is like, is standing directly overhead. It's time to pray. And then it's starting to descend in, in the evening time. It's time to pray. And then the sun goes down and the moon comes up and that movement is a time to pray. And then in the midnight, you know, when, when the moon is fully up and all the stars are out, it is time to pray. Mm -hmm. and so this community in particular has written prayers uh it's fixed the time is set it's not spontaneous um and it's connected not with the sacrifices at the temple but it's connected with the changes of the heavenly luminaries we could say Mm -hmm. and so um why right why that because They understood the notion that the, um, this is his quote. He says, the notion that the heavenly angels sing praises to God at certain times of the day. So those on earth should time their worship with the celestial praises above. So Mm -hmm. they understood this connection, like for them, that um, like the changes of the heavenly luminaries, the moon and the stars, was connected with the angels. Right, and, and so they were. They didn't. They were uniting their prayer and worship with the heavenly Jerusalem.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, and that's that's a unique uh, thing happening within their community.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because it even. I mean, you hear like echoes of that, right? Uh, in you know, in the New Testament, specifically in Acts, where you have the disciples gathered together at different intervals. The third hour, you know, the apostles going up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, you know, Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and Paul and Silas were up at midnight praying and mm-hmm. singing hymns mm-hmm. to God. You know, mm-hmm. and you also think, you know, what also what also comes to mind is, you know, the temple was considered to be, kind of microcosm of the of the creation of all of creation and so the worship happening at the temple while it was confined to a particular time and place was a way by which people were able to enter into the eternal worship of the heavenly temple Um, and this was to encompass and this included Not just those who are present there in the temple, but also all of creation, you know, including, you know, I I mean, there's a lot of work that has been done to show even how Genesis 1 and 2 are written specifically, you know, with the backdrop of the temple in mind, Um, Mm -hmm. that this is uh, this is temple language of how. You know, Adam is placed in the garden to work and to till the earth. The same language that is used for the priest offering sacrifice in the temple, and how the temple was, you know, decorated columns uh, with with images of of animals and sea creatures. Uh, there were, you know, of, of trees, almost like a paradise. Uh, a paradise. And so, it's yeah, just yeah. interesting to hear this about the Qumran community making this identification. That even though you know they are not identifying their prayer and their praise with that which is the sacrifices happening within the temple, they're seeing the the larger picture of how the worship their worship is joined with that of all of creation.
1: Yeah, that and that's a that's a good point that you you referred to uh, um, Genesis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so. For the Qumran community, connecting their their prayer and worship to the, the changes, the cycle of the day, um, was built on the premise that of Genesis 1 and 2, that God created an ordered physical world. You know, and this was a point we made in the last episode, like God made an ordered physical world and we're meant we've been created in a way to live in in harmony in unison with the created world around us. And so the Qumran community's worship was built on that premise that it's like, well, these are the times that prayer ought to happen because this is how God has created the day to be. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think too, I mean, you know, so to, to make the shift and to begin to, you know, kind of look at, early christians and how they you know this perhaps you know influenced or impacted or ha- just how even even the regular pattern of prayer kind of emerged naturally from what they were already accustomed with you know within <laughs> first century judaism you know i think the the conviction is both among the the jews and the early christians is that we live to praise god we live to offer him what is what is due to him uh there's this recognition you know we call it the virtue of religion you know we uh or the virtue of justice we give to god what is due to god and so the whole idea of temple worship the whole idea even of a regular pattern of fixed pattern of prayer and the desire to that kind of desire to unite even personal prayer to that which was happening you know in the temple arises from this this deeply ingrained conviction that God has created us he has he has fathered us that he has now he has now redeemed us he has brought us through he has delivered us you know out of the red sea and into the promised land and even through times of of exile and return and you know, destruction of the temple and rebuilding the temple, etc., that there's this conviction that we owe to God what is due to Him, and what is due to Him is our praise and our th- thanksgiving. And that itself is understood to be a sacrifice that is only to be offered to God. And so, you know, why this Why this conviction that a life totally ordered, you know, you're talking about the order Uh, That we see ingrained in creation, that got kind of speaking to not only the existence of God, but who God is. That God is a God of order. He is a God who brings order out of the chaos. um, That He is the God who uh, desires for all things to speak of His providence, His providential care for all things and all creatures. And so a fixed pattern of prayer, a regular pattern of prayer, would be an expression. Of that well-ordered life that is ordered towards giving God what is due to God, which is, pray, which is praise and thanksgiving for all His gifts and all that He has given, and not just all mm-hmm. He has given, but for who He is. And so, as the early Christians come, you know, along, and obviously this this takes on a new flavor because now God has be, been revealed in His fullness and the redemption that has been wrought for us in Christ, you know, has been, has been completed and that there is a, there is a finality to that. There is an eternity to that. That was not true before. And the implications of this is that, you know, that even more so, if that was true for the old law, that what we owed to God was nothing less than our, our very lives that we owed to him, our praise, our thanksgiving, our, our fattened, Uh, calves, our, you know, our grain, our first fruits, etc. We owed him everything that we owed that to him. If that was true, then it is even more true now that God has taken on flesh, that he has assumed what is ours in order to give us what is his and that we have received what we have not deserved. And therefore we offer up, it is God who has first loved us. And so therefore we offer up in love the, only thing that we can offer, which is our very lives in mm-hmm. thanksgiving and praise for what he has done for us. And so as we see this kind of happening, this, you know, so the early Christians are, you know, they're gathered, they're devoting themselves to prayer day, day and night. You know, they're, uh, you know, it says here, it quotes it in the general instructions, you know, and I read this earlier, you know, they're going, they're gathering together at the third hour, they're going up to the housetop. To pray at the sixth hour, they're going to the temple to pray at the hour of prayer in the ninth hour. You know, at midnight they're rising to pray, and together they're coming together to to offer up the prayers. You know, there's one um, there's one document uh, that we uh, that we have that's called the Apostolic Tradition, and it's from the year two fifteen. So this is a little bit removed from from the apostles, but nonetheless, it, it. it's called the apostolic tradition. It's written by Hippolytus, but it's called the apostolic tradition because it bears the name of the apostles. You know, this is believed to be the tradition handed on by the apostles themselves. And what it describes in the apostolic tradition is that even when Christians weren't coming together, it certainly calls Christians to come together at regular times to pray, not just for uh, not just for liturgy, not just for worship, but to uh, to come together to offer up the praises mostly contained in the psalms to hear instruction on the scriptures, but even when they 're not they 're to gather in homes at regular times and it 's in this document that it, it again hmm. alludes to the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, even rising at midnight um, you know from your bed, it even says in a place it says you know and if you 're married, make sure you rise with your wife too." And offer <laughs> offer the prayers, offer the prayers, and I think it's it's in that document it's either in apostolic tradition or another document called the apostolic constitutions It says for when when prayer is offered with a believing heart as though from the font, the gift of the spirit and the sprinkling of baptism sanctify him who believes, therefore it is necessary to pray at this hour then it goes on for the elders who who gave us the tradition this tradition taught us that at that hour all creation is still for a moment to praise the lord stars trees water stop for an instant and all the host of angels which ministers to him praises god with the souls of the righteous in this hour that is why believers should take good care to pray at this hour so there's this understanding you know and i think this gets into kind of a broader um, kind of a, a broader conversation where we understand that when we offer up, when we come to the mass and we come to the divine office, that we come to offer right worship to God, uh, not just for ourselves, but also for all of creation. So we are created as rational beings, created to be able to articulate the praises of God, to give mm-hmm. him glory in a way that, you know, in a way that non-rational creatures are not able to do, Right. And so yeah. we do this. We sum up all the praises of all of creation, offering true and right worship to God on their behalf. And that in this way, we truly become, you know, the priest that Adam was intended to be in the beginning. You know, to work and to till the earth, to to take to mediate God's presence to all of creation, and to take all of creation and to offer its praises to the Lord. Um, and so. I think it's just a beautiful, you know, and I I, I too, I think to, you know, Sunday, uh, Sunday week one, you know, are the second, um, the canticle that is used in morning prayer, you know, from Daniel, which is mm-hmm. a, this mm-hmm. great hymn of praise, calling all of creation to join, uh, to join us in praising God.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I love about that hymn is. You know, I, I, I think of um, Frost and Chill, Bless the Lord, right, is one of them. Um, it, and so how does Frost bless the Lord? Well, Frost doesn't speak. Right. You know, but there's the, the idea of by existing, something blesses the Lord, You know, so using, like, Thomas Aquinas' language, he would say um, that something that has essence and existence has being. Um, And so the very act of being is a blessing to the Lord. So the natural world that, like, in our time, like, this tree, its existence its being is the blessing to God,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: but but that is able to be mediated and communicated uh, by us,
2: right? You know? Right.
1: And and so and then it th- c- compares to me like like if I just exist, you know, I'm able to bless the Lord in my very existence of, of just my being. So
0: I think what you're saying that existence itself. Is a blessing is a blessing to the Lord because it itself bespeaks of the Lord's goodness, um, and yeah, so it, yeah. God brings nothing into existence without desiring that it would proclaim His grace and His favor, His good, His goodness, and His mm-hmm. his, his worth. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, um, the unique role that we have as rational creatures is to take that and to offer it up in uh, to articulate that goodness, that praise, to return that to the Lord, to make it an offering. You know, so it's not just uh, it's not just good in its nature, but it is now being returned to God, and that can only be done through a priest, because creation can't do that uh, by by itself. It, it doesn't it, it doesn't have the rational capacity to be able to offer itself freely, because there is no free will in creation, right? So there is a mm-hmm. gift that we mm-hmm. get to offer god on behalf of all of creature all all creatures there's a mm, gift that mm-hmm, we get mm-hmm. to offer god that um that returns that returns his glory that gives him gives him glory and praise and i yeah. think that you know just to kind of bring things to a close we've seen here that there is precedent not only for fi- fixed hour prayer in the early church but there's fi- there's precedent for this conviction this deeply ingrained conviction within Even the complex nature of Judaism in and around the first century that we live to offer praises to God and that sacrifices in the temple are even incomplete without the offering of praise and thanksgiving done both by individuals and communities, even when they can't be present in the temple.
1: Yeah, you know, the last little part about that is that that developing within judaism at that time was there was public and private prayer mm-hmm. you know this as the public prayers that were happening in the temple but then also the private prayers uh happening in the morning in the in the evening um and so we do see like real a really beautiful picture of how the early christians were you know probably in you know, their relationship with judaism you know, and how Christianity developing out of and, and how just we continue to carry on the traditions that have kind of been passed down to us, you know, and how the Lord blesses those and, and is working within them.
0: Yeah, and I think that sets us up well for maybe, you know, I guess this kind of turns into a two-part conversation on fix our prayer in the early church and the early Christian witness to that. But I think that puts us in a spot where we can... We can continue this conversation next time and really dive into uh, how, what that early Christian witness looked like, maybe dive even a little bit more into uh, the first few paragraphs of the General Instructions, the documents uh, that I mentioned earlier, the Apostolic Tradition and Apostolic Constitutions, and then how this pattern of prayer, of daily prayer, ended up being codified you know, over the course of time. To become something that was done and considered to be worship, right alongside the Mass, uh, because this did take time to happen. This didn't didn't just happen overnight. And so, to understand, I think the great gift that the Liturgy of the Hours is to us, you know, it's important to dive back into this history and see how this how this developed and how this emerged. Uh, but what I think what we've established today is that. Within the period of Second Temple Judaism and the time of the apostles, time of the early Christians, there was already this deeply ingrained conviction that we live for the praise of God's glory. And uh, to do that means not only to offer sacrifice in the temple or as Christians, not only to uh, worship God through the sacrifice of the mass, but for that to come to fruition through uh, daily daily prayer.
1: Exactly. All, all right.
0: right. Well, until cool. until next time, we'll uh, we'll we'll pick up. And um, why don't we close with our our prayer? By the way, this uh, concluding prayer that we're going to close with, if you're listening in and you're not familiar with it, is the concluding prayer to uh, to morning and evening prayer when we pray the liturgy of the hours.
1: All right. Let go us ahead. pray
0: in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless us, protect us from all evil. And bring us to everlasting life amen. amen in the name of the father son and holy spirit amen cool cool all right gabriel
1: talk. hey talk to you later man okay god bless god bless
0: thank you for listening to Volkspansi, a podcast on the liturgy of the hours brought to you by the saint thomas More house of prayer a catholic retreat center in the diocese of erie pennsylvania with the mission of praying and promoting the liturgy of the hours the public and communal prayer of the catholic church for more information visit us online at liturgyofthehours.org